If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 550. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. We get a free class when you do enroll. Ten Myths of American History. Here we are at Black Friday week. We got Thanksgiving on Thursday, Black Friday on Friday, and then Cyber Monday on Monday. And I've already been offering my best deal of this holiday season for the entire month. But it's going to wrap up pretty quickly uh, Thanksgiving comes late this year, and this deal expires on November 30th. So if you want to get 30% off at McClanahan Academy, make sure you're on my email list. You're checking your email. You're getting that 30% coupon. Make sure you're doing it because that's how you're going to save the most money. Once we get to November 30th, I am not offering a 30% discount, discount coupon ever again. So if you want to get McClanahan Academy for 30% off, Make sure you do that. That includes my bundle classes, by the way, which are already discounted. So you get 30% off the bundle discount. I mean, it's it's an amazing deal. So head on over to McClanahan Academy, get on that email list, or brianmcclanahan.com, get on that email list so you can get that deal. And of course, share the podcast around on social media, rate it where you get your podcast, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Let's talk about uh, a few things this week. Short week, we're going to do three podcasts this week. Um, mostly on contemporary issues, uh, though today is a little bit of historical background. I'm going to do that with the other stuff as well, um, give you some historical insight into what some of the people on the left and on the right are saying about some things. But first, I want to start with a piece by Lindsay Travinsky. Um, that she, now, she's writing for The Hill now. She's written a book on Washington's cabinet, which a colleague of mine said was... Uh, just a redundant book. I mean, it's stupid, right? It's it's worthless. Um, you know, but of course, nobody's ever just focused on Washington's cabinet. So now she's become this rock star. She's a leftist. She's become this rock star among you know, kind of the uh, the establishment presidential historians. She gets to go to things and gets on podcasts and interviews and other things doing with dealing with the president. She, she I think she she writes for the hill now on a regular basis. So um she's she's I think put out a great courses class. She talks about it in this piece. So she's kind of an emerging star now. And that's unfortunate because when you read what she writes, it's really bad. Um <laughs> not just that uh, what she says is wrong a lot of times. I mean, th- this is where we are. Look, I- I've had undergraduates that write like this, and this is now considered mainstream uh, mainstream academic 
work. Now, granted, okay, when I put out my email list and she's writing for popular things like, uh, you know, Substack or uh, when I do my email list, I write in a different way than I would for an academic book. And she does that as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's not the case. Um, and of course, when you're writing for a popular audience, you're going to write differently than you would if you're writing for an academic audience. There's, there's no doubt about that. But I, I want to, to talk about a couple of things she says in this piece. It's Republic or Democracy. And she started this, I saw a, a Twitter uh, thread with this, where she was complaining about somebody criticizing what she said on a podcast or something, which she used the term um, begging the question, which everyone uses that incorrectly. Right? When you say it begs the question, that that doesn't mean it invites a question. It means you're using a circular argument. So that's what begging the question is. It's a logical fallacy. Uh, if you want to say it invites a question, that say it raises the question or it brings up the question. I mean, this is what you use. But a lot of people use it incorrectly, and apparently she used it incorrectly. And look, people say things, and she said, as you, as you go on and you're unscripted for a long time, you're going to say things incorrectly. I do it on this podcast at times. I mean, it just happens. I can understand that. But she took great offense to this. Then someone criticized her for the term democracy and republic. And this is something that we've seen a lot of. Well, we live in a republic, not a democracy. Now, I want to bring this up. I do agree with her that these terms are vague. They're ambiguous. They don't really mean anything. And she's trying to relate this back to what the founding generation said about these things. Now, where I would think she doesn't, where I would say she doesn't really know what she's talking about. The term republic is not indicative of what the United States actually are, right? When I say are, that's, a, that's essential. We have a federal republic. We could say we're a federal republic, not a democracy. And that would be entirely accurate. Because if you say we're a republic, not a democracy, that means we're a singular republic. And as she points out correctly, the the only part of this that would matter is that you know democracy we don't have a direct democracy this is correct but we do know that the left uses that term democracy a lot and it is a misnomer the united states is not a democracy either it's not a republic either it's neither right it's a federal republic now you could say alabama is a republic massachusetts is a republic california is a republic <laughs> Uh, Florida's republic, North Dakota's republic. You could say that. Those are singular republics. But the United States is not a singular republic. It's a federal republic. And I think that is the important thing to note here. And she makes a couple of mistakes. So she's attacking this in a way from, from, from a position of ignorance. And, and I say that because I don't know what else you could say here. She doesn't really understand the structure and function of the United States government. She doesn't understand it. Now, this is someone who's writing about the Washington cabinet. This is someone who touts herself as being an expert, studied years. Now, she's very young, so her years is short. But years in, uh, in archives and other things, reading the founders and understanding the founders. She's a big fan of John Quincy Adams. That is a knock in and of itself. 
So I, I, I want to get into some of the things she says because, again, this is, this is popular. This is what you get. This is popular history nowadays. This is what you'll find on The Hill or on CNN or you know some of your left-wing sites, Slade or uh, The Nation, uh, The Atlantic, some of these things. You're going to get stuff like this, even Washington Post or New York Times. This is the kind of stuff you're going to get. And conservatives will do this too, which is, I find, problematic in that or troubling, I should say troubling. It's troubling as well. So she says, Over the weekend, I received an email from a person that had listened to a podcast episode and asked why I referred to the United States as a democracy. He wrote that, Surely I knew the nation is actually a republic. But if I wasn't familiar with that history, he'd be happy to summarize it for me. So, I mean, this, this was offensive to her, right? Somebody, some plebeian would have the gall. To email her and say, hey, you know, if you want to be... Now, of course, anyone that takes the time to do this, and I've had it happen to me too, anyone who takes the time to do this has too much time on their hands uh, that that would you know, say, I'm going to point this. Because they're doing it just to slap at you, right? I, I remember I, uh, I was given a C-SPAN talk on my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, and somebody pointed out that I said a word wrong a couple of times. And so they had to point this out to me. Yeah, okay, I mean... It happens, right? So I, I'm, I'm aware. It happens. But saying that the United States is a democracy is an important distinction to make. Now, she wants to split hairs here and say, well, yeah, the founding generation didn't like democracy. She gets into this, but they, weren't, they, they didn't like direct democracy. But the United States is a democracy because democracy and republic are essentially synonymous. This is her argument. This is where, again, we're going to have problems with this. While I elected not to respond to that particular email, in particular in italics, I've been thinking about the subject a fair bit the last few days. See, this got under her skin. That particular email, you didn't want to respond back to that person. But I'm going to respond back to this. I'm going to prove that I'm right that the United States is a democracy, is what she's saying. First, let's get our terms right. The framers of the Constitution did fear democracy, but they did not think of democracy the same way we do. They meant the very literal version, a group of people coming together to govern a society directly. They thought about ancient Greece and the fragility of that type of government, which Madison described in the Federalist Papers. Quote, a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. On the other hand, he described a as a republic as a, quote, government in which the scheme of representation takes place. So literally, any system in which there are elected representatives was considered some form of republic. Now, I do agree. It's considered some form of republic. Some form. It doesn't mean it's a singular republic. It means it's a confederal republic. This is the Alexander Hamilton actually used the term confederal in the Federalist Papers. Federal or confederal, same thing. Same thing. They mean the same exact thing. We have a federal republic, not a singular republic. So we have representatives from the states coming together with delegated or enumerated powers, and that's it. Okay, And they have to have a republican form of government in these states, which means you have to have representative government. Now, the founding generation was concerned about democracy, direct democracy, They didn't like that idea. 
They didn't like it for a variety of reasons. They thought democracy was causing all the problems in the states. They wanted to clamp down on it in some way or another. This is true. But she is splitting hairs here. Now, on the other hand, in 2021, Merriam-Webster offers two definitions of democracy. A form of government in which people choose leaders by voting. An organization or situation in which everyone is treated equally and has equal rights. So we're going to Merriam-Webster. Now, we should be going to Oxford, the Oxford English Dictionary, to find this term democracy and really get a good definition of that. Don't use Merriam-Webster. That's, uh, that's foolish. Um, that's just foolish. Okay, now that we have... Now she says, okay, this is her quote. Quote, okay, now that we have those terms out of the way, let's do a bit of analysis. The Constitution created a representative democracy in which eligible citizens vote for their leaders. How democratic that system has been or will be depends on whether each citizen can vote and whether their vote carries the same weight. To be sure, our system is more democratic now than it was in 1789 when only propertied white men were eligible to vote. Now, this is another quibble that I have with her. That's not true. In 1789... It wasn't just propertied white men that were eligible to vote. Not everywhere. In fact, you could find that in some states, free black men could vote. We know this was the case because there's been a lot written about it. Now, whether they did vote or not is another question, but we know that free black men could vote in certain places. And we know that uh, there was a gradual push for universal suffrage. That there was some question, even I mean, some northern states were starting to push for this universal white male suffrage. So was this the case in 1789? No. I mean, I think that is a platitude. It's a it's a slap. That's not true. Now we know over a number of years the vote was then restricted. They went back because you see. There was some question about whether this was a good idea to have more people voting or not. And so you had a conservative reaction to this in the 19th century in many states where voting was restricted in some cases or expanded in others. I mean, this was a, this was a back and forth. So this is not necessarily true. But this is what you get. Platitudes, slogans, chants. But it is not perfectly democratic as onerous restrictions on voting rights make it harder for some people to vote than others. And the representation in that Senate in the Senate is widely unequal. But don't get me started on that, as it's the subject for another day. Now think about what she just did here. Well, we've got voting restrictions. What voting restrictions? What voting restrictions are out there? If you are 18 years old in the United States, you can vote. Where's a voting restriction? I mean, I guess there's voting restrictions if you're not 18. Do we have to pay a tax anymore? Or, or we have, I mean, what voting restrictions are there? You have to show some form of identification? Some form. It can be almost anything in most of these states. And you can vote. That's not a voting restriction. That's not onerous. This is, this is Lindsey Travinsky spouting leftist nonsense to being, quote, historically objective. This is just stupid. And the representation of the Senate is widely unequal. It is? Wait a second. Every state gets two senators. See, this is where it comes out. She doesn't even understand the, the original intent of the Senate. This is, a, this is a scholar, an 
uh, an expert, quote-unquote, on the early Federal Republic. I find that hard to believe. So why do people persist in making this argument that is so clearly based on a rhetorical fallacy? Most recently, Representative Dan Crenshaw and Senator Mike Lee embrace this logic, and it's often deployed to defend unequal representation for certain states or communities. As in, it's perfectly fine that by 2040, 70% of Americans will be represented by 30 senators, while the remaining 30% will have 70 senators. That sort of unequal representation is to be expected under a republic. No, no. Not under a republic, but under a federal republic. You see, the Senate represents the states. I don't know where she missed this. If you go back, I mean, this is supposed to be someone who studied all the debates about the Constitution, studied all this stuff, studied the Philadelphia Convention, studied it all, and yet can't figure out that the Senate was there to represent the states. It was said over and over again. It didn't matter how many states, how many people you had in your state. They represent the state. Virginia had the same representation as Delaware in 1789. And Virginia was huge compared to Delaware. Still is. That's because the people in Delaware were represented by two senators and the people in Virginia were represented by two senators. The people of the state. The states were represented in the Senate. This is a, st I mean, I can't even believe she's making this argument as an expert, quote unquote, on the Federal Republic. It's embarrassingly bad. It's scary in many ways. This is passing off. She's passing off as a real expert on presidential history and the founding, the early founding period and the Constitution. And the, I mean, come on. Are you serious? All that is well and fine, but the question to which I regularly return is why people so desperately want to defend a system that is inherently unequal. Why is democracy a bad thing? For Mike Lee, the answer is pretty obvious, she says. His home state of Utah, with roughly 3.2 million residents, has the same number of senators as California, which is 39.5 million residents. The power of his vote would be significantly diluted if we had more equitable representation and the power of his party would be threatened if all citizens' votes counted the same way. Well, they do in the House of Representatives. So you've got a situation where California has more members in the House than Utah. Right? That was the whole point of the federal Republican system that was created in Philadelphia in 1787 and ratified by the states in 1787 and 1788. That's the whole point. This is where I can't, I mean, I don't understand where she misses that in all of her reading and studying and archival work, where she misses this point. This is embarrassing. But this is what you get from the left. This is, this is more like Ian Milheiser, who is a dope, than someone who's supposed to be a real scholar of the early Federal Republic. Ian Milheiser is just a leftist hack dope. But I expect more out of people that are supposed to study these things and understand these things. And now they're pre getting pretty popular out there, and they're going to talk about these issues. And look, I wouldn't recommend anything she does because of this kind of stuff. 
So Utah has the same representation as California because we have a federal republic. That's the whole point. But why is a random person so committed to a republic versus a democracy? Since we vote representatives either way, why not have the most equitable system we can? Here's how I think of it. If I'm in the running to win a prize, I don't want the rules to exclude the best competition. I want my work judged against the best. If I game the rules to ensure that no legitimate competition stands a chance, I might win. But that victory would be pretty shallow. Yeah. So if you're writing stuff like this, people might read it, but it doesn't mean it's right. And that, that, that I mean, you know what you're talking about. I, there's another situation, but people are going to read more of your stuff than somebody else. That's how I think of representation, voting, and democracy. I know it's an imperfect metaphor. They really aren't my strength, but I think the principle holds. Politicians should run based on their values and principles not based on how many votes they can keep from the voters they can keep from the polls. That's not what anyone's doing. I mean, the, the Senate, the system is designed not to keep people from the polls, but to say that the states are represented in the system. That's the whole point of the Senate. I mean, where does she miss this? Similarly, if your rights depend on limiting those of others, that says far more about you than it does the political system. And if you want to read more on this, this is where it's really funny. If you want to read more on this, then you need to read Jamel Bowie. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez understands democracy better than Republicans do, or, and that's in the New York Times, or George Thomas. America's republic, not a democracy, is a dangerous and wrong argument from the Atlantic. That highbrow overtly nonpartisan, objective magazine, The Atlantic. Or The New York Times. Yeah, read those. I mean, again, you almost can't make this up, but this is what passes for establishment historical knowledge in 2021. It's pretty embarrassing. And I, I don't know how else to say it. It's pretty embarrassing. She doesn't understand the Senate is there to represent states. This is exactly how it was sold. This, they represent the states in their political capacity. That's a direct quote. This is exactly how it was sold during ratification. So each state was not going to have equal representation. The United States is a federal republic, not a singular republic. And so you have unequal... Now, in, I'm sure in her state, I, don't, I can't remember where she lives, but I'm sure in her state, wherever that is, you've got a system, a Republican system. And in these states, when you have districts, you have representative districts, legislative districts that have an, about the same number of people, whether it's in the House or the lower chamber or the upper chamber. You just have fewer senators. I mean, it's kind of stupid in some ways to have this bicameral system the way it's established in the states in some ways. I can get on board with that. Maybe we need to have a, I mean, what's the point of the Senate? You know, if it doesn't represent something, so it's be these, you know, it has a check on the House, okay, but it should have some other requirements then too. I mean, that was the whole point of a Senate. And the federal republic, the Senate is the state check on democracy. That's the whole point. That's why it's there. That's why it exists. 
And I guess Lindsay Travinsky didn't get that when she's doing all of her research on the founding period and the founding generation and the Constitution and the ratification process. I don't, I don't know where she missed it because I've read those documents many, many times and I see it all over the place. In fact, if you take my Originalist Papers class at McClanahan Academy, I give you 101 documents, 101, that get into this. Right? It's one of the recurring themes. And eventually, and it's, I know I promised that Originalist Papers book was going to be out this year. I couldn't do it because it is a monster project. I'm going to tell you, it's probably going to have to be multi-volume work. It is a monster project, uh, nearly 800 pages. <laughs> so it's a big thing. And I've got to get some other things done with it. It needs to have an index and some other things. So I'm, I'm working on that behind the scenes. I haven't. It's still going to come out. Just not this year. But if you take the Originalist Papers class, you get the, the essays I recommend you read along with my introductions to them in that class. You can get it uh, either in a bundle or you can get it individually. And that 30% coupon works on the bundle and the individual classes. So you want to go out there and get that class. but Because if you do, you're going to read this and say, gosh, Lindsay Travinsky doesn't even know what she's talking about. And this is a professional historian that doesn't know what she's talking about here. Sad. It's really sad when you think about it. Somebody's failed her along the way. All right. Good start of the week. I've got two more this week. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.